Good morning, Overlake. I, uh, during, <laughs> hey Steve, that was very nice, that was very, very kind of you. Uh, the, the, I, it's so sad, the only real greeting that I knew from another language is hola, but guys, I'm holding it down, doing what I can. Oh, this morning's so much fun already, and it's just going to continue, especially post-service, and, and we'll get to that later. Uh, but I'm Pat, I'm one of the pastors on the team here. And welcome to week three. We are now into week three of this summer of connection that is not just something that's happening on Sundays. It's happening throughout neighborhoods. It's happening at parks. Uh, we've had the first few Overlakers already throw block parties in their neighborhoods and, and start getting to know their neighbors and introducing neighbors to one another. Last Sunday, we had the first two park parties, which is an opportunity to come and gather and meet other Overlakers who live near you. If you live in Redmond, by the way, anybody in Redmond? Anybody? Yeah? Land of the Five, or no, not 509. That's Spokane. Uh, 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 let's see. Zip codes. Zip codes for Redmond. 98053. Is that one of them? Nice. Nice. You'd think I'd know the church's address, and I'm still learning after eight years. Uh, but Perigo Park, 5 p.m. today, if you live in Redmond, you'll want to be there. Bring the whole family. It's a great chance to eat some hot dogs and, uh, you know, kind of eat some, some grub, play some games, and meet some other people that also call Overlake home. Well, we are in a series on Sundays where we're actually looking at stories that Jesus told. So every Sunday when you come, we're gathering, we're kind of looking through Scripture of things that Jesus talked about, stories that he told, parables that he told. If you were here last week... You remember we walked through the story that's kind of largely known as the story of the prodigal son. Uh, we discovered it's really the story of two lost sons. And so we kind of spent time looking. There's three main characters. There's a younger son, an older son, and this dad. We spent the lion's share of our time talking about the brothers and lessons we could learn from them. Today is kind of a part two. We're going to look at the same story, but discover what does it tell us about God by looking at this good father in this story. And because we're talking about a good father, I thought I would share one of my not top good father moments of 2018. One of like the not top tens on ESPN. I'm about to share one of mine when it comes to fatherhood. So uh, Memorial Day, Memorial Day, not that long ago, a couple months back now. Uh, a day off, Leah, she's spending all this time with Sailor. It's, it's exhausting raising a child, right? Uh, uh, and, and, and I get breaks throughout the day. I get to hang out with, with adults, and, and, and she really doesn't. So, so I tell her on Memorial Day, my gift to you, I will watch Sailor, whatever you need. If you, if you just want to rest, if you want to uh, go, go out, if, whatever it is. But, but I'll be in charge of Sailor. I got it. I totally got this. And so it's the afternoon time, and, and, and Sailor and I were playing in the living room. We're having some fun, and, and, and I kind of start to get a little tired. Like, Dad needs his afternoon nap too, right? So, so I'm like, you know, he's kind of keeping himself busy. I'll, I'll just go over here and lay down on the couch for a moment. And, 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 I, and I wake up to a, a, a two-and-a-half-foot-tall Picasso who comes running around the corner. And the first thought is, where's my phone? I have got to get pictures of this. This is amazing. Guys, by the way, this is Ruby Woo Sugar Lipstick, in case you like that shade of red. That's right. Just all over the place. And so my second thought is, I'm dead. Like, I'm, I, it's game over. Dad's in charge for all of, like, just half a day, and, and this happens. Uh, it eventually came off. We had to scrub him down with some uh, kerosene, but, but it came off just fine. Uh, 
No, he ran around. He, he looked, he actually, for a few days, he had this tint of red. We got off as much as we could. He looked like a little Oompa Loompa, just kind of cruising through town. So there's, there's really nothing like lipstick and kerosene and, and Oompa Loompas to segue right into Scripture. So if you want to follow along this morning, uh, you can grab the message notes in your handout. We'll, we'll have verses on screen. Or if you want to follow along in a Bible, uh, they're in the seatbacks in front of you. Those are all NLT. You can use that. That's the version we're using this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Please leave here with that. It, it is a, a great book. So we're going to kick off, and again, if you're here last week, this is going to be a little bit of a refresher. I know a lot happens in a week, and you probably can't even remember what we talked about, but, uh, but yes, we're going to be in the same passage here. Luke chapter 15, we'll start in verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners, again, love that word notorious, notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Remember Jesus, as he teaches, he, he draws crowds, and in this particular audience, there's kind of two subgroups. There's the tax collectors and sinners, and, and then there's the kind of religious elite, the, the Pharisees, the, the legal experts of the law, the teachers of the law. And so everyone's gathered, and it says that the sinners, they come often. Jesus, when he preaches, they just love, they, they just pick up what he's laying down. He, he, they just love it. It's filled with hope and with life and with, with purpose and with, with a, a good future. And so, and, and so they're, they're, they're dining with Christ and, and they're enjoying his presence. Uh, meanwhile, the Pharisees, they get a little offended. They get a little offended of who, who he's running with, kind of this, this riffraff of the community. Um, and, and what Jesus does is he kind of launches into two really brief uh, stories that take up the next few verses, which we'll skip. One is that there's this shepherd that has a hundred sheep. One goes missing, and so he leaves the 99 to rescue the one, to find the one. And so when what's lost is found, the shepherd gathers others and celebrates, rejoices. The next story he shares is there's this woman with 10 silver coins, and she loses one. And so she searches the whole house, and so once she finds it, similar, she wakes up the whole neighborhood and throws a party because what is lost has been found. And then he gets to this story, this again, this climactic finish of this theme of his little teaching series here. So starting in verse 11 now, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. Again, it's a story of two sons, but it's also a story of this man of this good father, and that's the lens, that's the title of this morning's message, is we're looking at a story of the good father. And so as we come to this text, that's the lens we're bringing. We're, we're coming to learn lessons of who is this father? What is this father like? What is Jesus trying to teach us here? The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. So again, this younger son saying, you're worth more to me dead than alive. I'd rather have your riches than a relationship with you. And shockingly, the father goes ahead and gives this son, actually divvies out the inheritance. One third to this younger son, two thirds to the older son. That's just, that's just the way it was. So if you're an older son or an older sibling, uh, congrats, you, you get a little bit more. Here we go, verse 13. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to Las Vegas, as we learned last week, right? Las Vegas. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. 
About that time, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. So this young son leaves with all this wealth, all this money, lives large, goes big, and then goes broke. And now recession hits the economy. It's hard to find a job. The best he can do is to persuade some farmer to take him on as a hired servant, kind of a slave, to just be the feeding boy to these unclean animals, his, his herd of swine, these pigs. And things are so bad, he's so hungry that in fact the food that he's slopping out for these pigs begins to look appealing to him. It's that bad. It's the lowest of the low. And if you think about it, the audience that's just been sitting there listening to this story, they've just heard these two other stories, remember? So in their minds, they're probably beginning to jump to conclusions of what comes next. They're probably thinking, oh, I bet I know. Remember this dad, this, this, this father had two sons. I bet, the, I bet the other son, I bet the older son, he'll go out and rescue because he loves his little brother. He's, he's going to go out and he's, and he's going to find his little brother. And whatever, whatever the cost is to bring this little brother back into the family, back into the home, he'll take it on himself and, and, and that'll be the story. But in a strange twist, this is where the story begins to go. And it would especially catch off guard the Pharisees. But listen, verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned, both against, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So no older brother showing up for the rescue here. He decides, I'm going to actually go kind of eat crow, kind of, kind of eat my lumps here, kind of, kind of head home, and I'm going to go and just tell my dad a, a, a well-waxed apology and see if he'll be willing to take me on, not as a son, but as a slave, as a, as a hired servant. Perhaps somehow I can begin to earn back some wages to just even pay back my father, at least in a, a small part, uh, all, all the gift that he gave me, all the inheritance he gave me. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, again, we're listening for this story, for this, this lesson from the father, and here he shows up. His father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned both against heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. This father greets his son, sees him coming around the turn. His son, who's probably gaunt looking, remember he's starving, so he's probably, he's probably just like a shadow of his normal self, sandals wearing out, probably, probably, probably some worn out jeans, some holes in his jeans as he, as he comes onto the property and his, his father runs out to greet him. Grown men don't run in this day. I mean, grown men still don't run. But, but, but in particular, the patriarch would not be one to just kind of pick up his little, little robe and go. You know what I'm saying? Like little kids would, livestock's running around, slaves would kind of run to fetch things here and there. But, but not the dad, not, not the head honcho, not the CEO. 
So as this dad darts off, the attention probably goes from who is this stranger coming onto the property? I I can't even recognize who it is to, oh my word, this old man is booking it. People are rubbernecking to just see what's happening. Like, is he going to make it? He's going to have a heart attack. He's going to trip over a rock, you know? But here he comes running, and he greets his son. He embraces him. He kisses him. And this son begins to, to, to go into this apology of saying, I've sinned against heaven, uh, pretty much saying, I've sinned against everything good. Any, anything that, that, that's, any moral standard there is, I've just wasted it all. And I've sinned against you, Dad. And, and, and so he goes into this apology that he's been working on, on this long distance back home. And here's what the dad does. He cuts him off. He just totally interrupts. Verse 22, but his father said to his servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the, the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and now is returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. So there's a restoration. The son comes home. The father runs out. He, 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 he calls off the, the apology. He's saying there's no time for sitting in your shame. There's only time for celebrating. And I want everyone to know who this is. Get my finest robe. When he's saying getting the finest robe, he's talking about his own wardrobe. Get the nicest thing I have. Put it on him. It makes me think, now when you see this son, you can't help but think of who his dad is just simply by looking at him. It makes me think of Romans 13, 14. Clothe yourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. That as we live our lives, who is it that people see when they look at us? This is a marker of identity. And if that doesn't communicate enough, the family signet ring would. There would be no mistaken whose son this was, what family he was a part of, much like water baptism for us, a public display of who we are committed to, who we are identified with. There's all kind of depth here of what's going on. And you would think, if you hadn't heard this story before, if you weren't here last week and you've never heard this story, you would think this story's over. It's a happy ending. There's a party. There's music and dancing. There's all kinds of life. But it continues because there's a second son, remember? And so the camera, it pans over to this older son. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. We talked about that, that, that older kind of sibling work ethic, that parent pleaser type. He's, he's out there working in the fields. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what was going on? Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. So he's just catching this news. He's just updating the score of France and Croatia. He's, he's finding out what's gone on while he's been away working so hard. His brother has returned and his dad has killed his favorite cow, the fat calf. Verse 28, the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours 
comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Again, so different than these preceding stories where there's this search and rescue effort, where there's this value of the lost as opposed to the demonizing of it. He's become self-righteous. He's turned in on himself. He's beginning to tell his dad, this good father, how best to kind of allocate and use the rings and the robes and the livestock. He takes this form of control, of kind of religious control, and kind of, kind of points to his moral record and standing. But his heart is so unlike his dad's. It's so unlike his dad's. His response couldn't be more different. Verse 31, his father said to him, again, we're learning from this dad. It's a picture in loving voice, in a loving tone. Here's what this dad says to this older brother who's protesting. He's outside. Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours, which is true. The dad had given out the inheritance, so everything on that land was that older brother's. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And at that point, the story ends. And we don't know what the older brother ends up doing. It's one of those places where you're beginning to kind of wrestle in your own spirit of, of what would be your response to this good father's invitation to come and join the celebration. And so last week, we really dove in and we kind of learned some lessons from this younger brother and some lessons from the older brother. But today, we're going to look simply at what we can learn from the dad. And so there's three different thoughts I'd love to give you. But what Jesus is doing in telling this story, he's doing far more than redefining sin. He's doing far more than showcasing the fact that you can be lost and still be home, as is the case with this older brother. He's actually, Jesus is actually answering humanity's deepest question, our deepest longing, our deepest, the, the, the theological question that's been burning throughout all of time is if there is a God, then what is God like? Jesus tells this story to, to lay down the framework to answer that question. And what we see is because this is a good father, because the disposition of this father is always only ever love, we can learn about this God who is love. And so the first point is this. God's love is prodigal. God's love is prodigal. Some of you are like, wait, time out. The story is the story of the prodigal son, not the prodigal father. And I would say, well, it's really of both. The, 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 the son is prodigal because he has lived recklessly in lifestyle. The father is prodigal in how he loves. Let's look just at the definition of prodigal. I want you guys to see this, to kind of know, to be refreshed in case we're unaware of what prodigal means. Prodigal means recklessly extravagant, having spent everything, giving something on an outlandish scale. That is the love that this father displays. It's outlandish, it's crazy, it's reckless. Timothy Keller, he wrote a book called The Prodigal God, and he just walks through this story. And it's just shocking to hear that phrase, prodigal God, and yet that is the gospel, that is the good news, that God's love is prodigal. 
And it's epitomized in this moment when the, the younger son returns home and the father runs out and greets him, embraces him, kisses him, covers him. There's this famous painting by Rembrandt in St. Petersburg, Russia, in a museum there. It's called The, the Prodigal Son. It, it, it looks like this. And, and, and what it is, is it's this picture of this moment of this father greeting the son. And it's one of the Dutch masters' kind of final works. And, 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 and it's interesting. In fact, actually, one of my favorite uh, Christian thinkers and writers, one of my spiritual mentors, Henry Nouwen, goes to this museum, watches, looks at this painting, and is awestruck. He's having a, a powerful kind of spiritual moment of just recognizing the totality of God's love. He sits there for eight hours. He writes about this experience of just drinking in, just meditating on just how prodigal this love is, how crazy it is, how outlandish it is, how reckless it is. And what Rembrandt's doing is that use of light draws your eyes to the hands. As you've been looking at it, you've probably seen the worn out sandals, the shaved head, the, the older son off to the side, arms crossed. But let's look at the hands. If we can zoom in on those hands, I want you to see that these two hands are, are quite different. And it's, and it's by intentionality. Rembrandt, he was an okay painter. I mean, he could have made these look identical if he wanted to. But he's intentional in what he's done here. When you look at this hand that's to our right, the father's left hand, it's clearly masculine. It's kind of boxy. It's kind of got high knuckles, kind of, kind of, kind of on there, kind of, kind of, and, and, and it's clearly the hand of a man. Meanwhile, the other one is much smaller, slider, softer, and it's communicating this tone. It looks as if it's, it's feminine in nature. It's a hand of a woman. And what, what Rembrandt is, is showcasing here through art is the totality of the love of the father in this story. It's beyond words. And it transcends things so well. It transcends things like language and culture and time so well. We can all identify with just how ridiculous the love is of this father. And I began to get curious. I wanted to begin to see, actually, well, what are some other art pieces depicting this very scene? And it's amazing to see the artwork produced throughout the world. It's amazing to see different cultures express in their own way just what this moment means. So whether you live in sub-Saharan Africa, the mountains of Peru, the coastline of Indonesia, or the sands of Iraq, whether you speak Urdu or Spanish, Mandarin or Swahili, whether you were born in the 30s or 40s or you're a baby boomer, a Gen Xer or a millennial, we each and all of us can identify with this radical love. And it communicates something to the depths of who we are. And again, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's, he's telling the story to display just who God is, of what he is like. Amen. It's for all, all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, for all of time. And this family, and today we're celebrating it, is a beautiful reflection of that very reality. Of that very reality. Second thought when it comes to this story and what it teaches us about God, his love, who he is. God's love is restorative, not retributive. Restorative, not retributive. To restore is something that to, to make better, to improve, to heal. That, that, that idea of being retributive, rather, is to take revenge, exact punishment, require payment. 
What the son receives is a full restoration into the family. Not just a brief welcome. Not just, oh, I feel so bad for you. Here's some new shoes, some new clothes, a little bit of food. Now be on your way. No, 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 no. Full inclusion. You are now back one into the family. Full restoration. So where's the punishment for sin in all of this? What I would say is the destructive nature of this man's choices has been punishment enough. His body is just dictating that, is showing that. You look at the wear and tear of a sin-filled lifestyle. It takes its toll. Is that not destructive enough? What this young man needs is love, is restoration, is healing. And that's who this good father is. That's what he gives. And this is why it's important that we not fall into to, to, to some sect of Christianity that, that has, has fallen into this trap of, of having some type of angry God syndrome. Of, of, of somehow this, this fearful God that it's out of fear that we make better choices, that we change our lives. No. Just the opposite. It's this God of radical love, of prodigal love, of reckless love, of restorative love, not retributive, not punishment, not exacting an aim, a punishment on us. I want to read for you just a small excerpt from a sermon given 250 years ago by, by the great revivalist Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, he was, he was kind of revered revivalist from the Great Awakening, the mid-1700s. Mid and he preached this really famous, famous message, which uh, gathered lots of people down front to, re to receive Christ. And it was titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Here's just a little flavor of it. Here's a little flavor of it. It's, it's, it's the part I think of the spider. It has to do with the spider, but I'll just read it. Just listen to this. Listen to this. The God that holds you over the pit of hell... Much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. Woo! Anybody want to be in eternity with that guy? That's scary stuff. Growing up in church, and I didn't miss a Sunday. I didn't even miss a Wednesday night. Guys, if the church was going on, the Swansons were there. I heard my fair share of the angry God messages. I did not miss an altar call. Guys, I was scared. I lived quite well out of fear for a long time. Let me tell you. Let me tell you how mistaken that is. Let me tell you how sad that is. Let me tell you the effect it's probably had on a region like the Seattle area where it's, it's, there's quite few of us that gather in worship and praise to Jesus because I perhaps wonder if there's very few of us that recognize that God is love, that he's amazing, that he's worthy of all praise. I wonder if so many people have been so damaged by messages in line with Jonathan Edwards here. But to be fair, I would never want someone to pull out my old messages and critique me, especially after I'm long gone. So to do justice, let me, let me build back up Jonathan Edwards in your mind, okay? 
Let me read for you an excerpt from another sermon he preached. This one's quite more in line with, I think, who God is. And it communicates something far more effective, I think, for each of our journeys. And it's, it's from a sermon that was titled, A Divine and Supernatural Light. That just sounds better. Can we be honest? That just sounds so much nicer than sinners in the hands of an angry God. Okay, here he is. Words of Jonathan Edwards, spoken 250 years ago. There is a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious. And so here he is. He's, he's speaking to the attributes of who God is. And having a new sense on the heart of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. The difference between believing that God is gracious and tasting that God is gracious is as different as having a rational belief that honey is sweet and having the actual sense of its sweetness. Here's what he's saying. First of all, he's saying God is loving and gracious and holy, pure, beautiful, right, true. And it's one thing to hear those things. It's one thing to be able to recite those things. It's one, one thing to be able to, to get those right on a quiz or maybe commit them to memory. He's saying it, it is totally different to experience those things. It is something completely different to just think about honey as being sweet as opposed to just throwing some honey on some toast and throwing it down. Honey is so sweet, but you really only can testify to that if you've actually experienced it. What Jonathan Edwards is saying is we must experience the grace of God, Amen. the goodness of him, this prodigal love. It's not good enough to just come to church, memorize some things, walk away, be able to recite it. We must experience it in the fullness. What does this younger son experience as he comes home? He experiences an embrace, a kiss, gifts, lavish, like a, a family ring and a robe. By that night, he's smelling in the sweet smell of a fattened calf. He's tasting it. There's music of celebration. There's fine wine being shared. There's, there's all kinds of goodness that he's experiencing through all of his senses that's out of the love of this father, of his dad. Jesus shares this story intentionally in the way he does because he's saying... You guys are so loved. Would you experience this grace of God, this radical love of God? And it can run the whole gamut. It can be all kinds of different things. I wrote down just a short list that there are ways that I have experienced God's grace. And, and I would just testify, 20, 20 minutes ago, I was down here as we're singing those lyrics in Spanish, and I'm just having a moment. I've heard that song so many times. And yet, after hearing it in Spanish and then singing it in, in, in my own language, English, uh, I, it's like I heard that song for the first time, and man, it took me to the throne, guys. Man, I worship. Man, I experience this grace, this loving embrace of the Father. So it could be that truth is coming through in a worship song. It could be art. Henry Nouwen stared at the same picture for eight hours, was wrecked by it, wrote a book on it. Perhaps you just need to spend some time in taking in some of these masterpieces that have been created throughout time as people have worshipped God throughout their creativity. Perhaps you need to go into a really nice cathedral. You know they're built the way they are, right? It draws your, your gaze heavenward. It reminds you who you're with, who you're in communion with. You know why there's saints on the stained glass, right? 
because we are part of a cloud of witnesses, because there are those that have gone before us, and we enter in and praise with them. Prayer and worship doesn't just start and stop when we start and stop. It's always going. We just get to come in for a bit and then maybe go back out for a little bit. So experience His grace. It could be a message. Maybe there's something that you hear that taps into the depths of this reality. It could be taken in a view of nature just at its finest, a view of the Cascades, or, or, or go down to Juanita Bay nice and early. Let me tell you, the birds will make you worship. You can experience the grace of God here in this area. It could be the scent of the fresh ocean breeze. It could be through communion as you taste, as you taste the grace of God through the elements. Much like the, the psalmist says, we are to taste and see that the Lord is good. That again, all of our senses are in play here. Not just our ears. It's not just through preaching. It's not just through song. It's through all kinds of experiences that we get to experience who God is and his love for us. And it leads me to this last one, and we can't miss this. If we miss this, we miss the whole story. God's love is made known through the storyteller. The storyteller. Jesus is, is telling this story so beautifully to kind of build this framework for us theologically of not just who God is, but if there is God, what is God like? And he shares this story. And then, if we are sensitive enough as we read the Gospels, we recognize, wow, Jesus is God. Amen. He and the Father are one. He only ever does what he sees his Father doing. When we look at Jesus, we are looking at God. God, Jesus is the full revelation of the infinite God. Hallelujah. Jesus incarnate, in flesh. He has moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson says it. He has given us this ability to actually know who God is and what he is like. And thus, Jesus is perfect theology. And so we can actually construct everything by looking at who he is. So when we read this story, we cannot forget who is sharing the story. Not just Jesus. Not just Jesus. Not just some man. Not some, 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 some just good rabbi or teacher or well-spoken orator of the time. God himself is sharing this story with us. He's saying, this is what I'm like. The type of love you witness here is the type of love I have for you. Would you experience it? Would you, would you allow it to tr transform your lives? People with the angry God syndrome get tripped up in thinking, but if there's no punishment, but if you're too easy on sin, what keeps people from just running off into that wild living all over again? Oh, oh, you've missed it. You've missed how grace is transformative. You think this younger son wants to be anywhere else but just with his father? The best place to be is home because that's where the father is. This younger son has, has been transformed radically. Meanwhile, the other one, we don't even know if he goes back in to enjoy the party, though, in presence of his dad. Grace is transformative, so transformative that if if you were to, to have a, a Las Vegas 2.0 moment in your life, another season of wild living, 
That same father that ran out to greet you the first time will run out the second time. It's true. He runs out with arms open wide, not a belt or a whip in his hand. He runs out with robes and rings, not, not, not calling for you to be tied to some post to be whipped. There is no retribution here. There is only love, lavish, prodigal, crazy love. And that, when, when, when we come up close to that, and not just close, but when we experience it, we change. It's no wonder why, if we are changed, that Jesus is saying the kingdom will come. If enough people get, get, get changed by, by me, by my grace, by just who I am, man, this whole world changes. This whole kingdom just kind of takes over. And we'll learn more about the kingdom in other stories Jesus told that are coming in future weeks. And so you aren't going to want to miss just how rich, just how transformative, just how much this, this changes us as we spend time in these stories that Jesus shares with us. So I'd like to do this now. I'd like to pray over us because I think there's something in just asking the Spirit to do what the Spirit wants to do. And it may look different. If there's, if, 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 if there's a thousand people in this room, it's going to look a thousand different ways because it's very unique in nature. But I want to pray over you that each of you experience the very grace, this very lavish love of God in a very unique way at some point this week. So let me pray that out. Lord, you have heard my heart. And I've been praying this prayer long before just this moment. We want to be a family of people that are so radically transformed by you simply because we experienced you. And so would you just take hold of all of our lives, all of the senses, the ways that you've wired us. Would, would, would we just kind of be open to the way in which you want to move this week so that you can communicate just how much you love us? And as that happens, Lord, would we just begin to find the joy that comes out of this living, of recognizing who we are, how we are sons and daughters. We love you so much, and we thank you so much for this morning and what it's about, because I think even, even today we get to experience this reality of your love for, for all peoples, for all nations, for all tribes, all tongues. Your name. Amen.